What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another edition of the Jays for Days podcast. I'm Josh. He's Josh. We got Jays Jumpers, Jaron Jackson Juniors, John Morantz, Joe Johnson's, Ja Raffs, of course. We've got Jays. We got him for days. Josh, how you doing? Are you ready for the mind-blowing stat related to the podcast <laughs> from Super Wild Card Weekend, I guess is what they call it now. Hit me. Quarterbacks with a J in their name facing an opponent who turned the ball over fewer than five times, three and O. How about that? Quarterbacks with a J in their name facing an opponent that turned the ball over at least five times, oh and one. Jeez, that's <laughs> crazy. I was trying to find which way to spin that all weekend. It was all I could think about, and that's what I ended up on. That's impressive. Because you got. Really- because you got back-to-back-to-back wins by J quarterbacks on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Daniel Jones, followed by, who was the second one? Jeez. Because Joe Burrow won the nightcap. Um, oh, Daniel Jones, oh, was, Daniel Jones was second. Josh Allen yeah, got the first Josh one. Josh Allen yeah, was yeah, first. Yeah. yeah. Poor Chargers. <laughs> um, the thing I learned from Wild Card Weekend is that Patrick Mahomes is going to waltz to a Super Bowl. Nobody was impressive. <laughs> Absolutely nobody. I mean, the only the only guy that was impressive is the guy who is like Mr. Irrelevant. Like, and Daniel Jones was good, but I am just yeah. not convinced that Daniel Jones can lead the Giants all the way through the NFC playoffs. And so it's either like like at this point, if you if you made me guess because of how banged up the Eagles are, I would probably bet on the Giants or the 49ers to make it to the Super Bowl. And I'm just not scared of Brock Purdy or Daniel Jones in the, mm-hmm. in the Super Bowl. And like the Bengals offensive line might be worse than it was last year at this point. Mm-hmm. And Josh Allen has like three or four plays a game that like <laughs> can turn out to be catastrophic. And like a couple of them were catastrophic in this game, in that game, he, which is he why went it was back to wild Josh Allen. Yeah. Right. And he's kind <laughs> of been wild Josh Allen all year, like on the, like on the low. He hasn't he's, been. He's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like that's like if if like they're going to the Chiefs are going to waltz to the playoffs to the AFC if the quarterback the rest of the quarterbacks in the AFC play like that for the next couple weeks and like maybe he gets Jalen Hurts in the in the Super Bowl but also I mean it's either Jalen Hurts I mean right it's Jalen Hurts Daniel Jones or Brock Purdy like that's probably what we're looking at out of the or, NFC right now. I mean theoretically maybe Dak Prescott who also or, hasn't shown capability right. of being competent in the playoffs either. Or, so or Tom Brady. Right. Right. Or Tom Brady, yes. Yeah. And I'm not totally I'm not totally convinced that the Cowboys are gonna win that football game tonight. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Um but anyways, yeah, it was a wild wild card weekend. <laughs> um and like it got so it got wild late enough on Saturday night that I came to <laughs> The lunch we were at together on Sunday saying how boring the playoffs had been so far and had zero idea that the Chargers had <laughs> coughed up that game against the Jaguars. So it ended up being quite a uh, quite an impressive weekend. And it's still not over because you got a Monday yep. night game, which is yeah. kind of wild. I, I really did spend a decent amount of time thinking about our Jay quarterbacks this weekend. How about that? I can't how explain why. It's just what happened, you know? Jay's for Day's podcast. Thanks for being with us today. There are some games this weekend, and we're going to talk about them, but um, per usual, it's a Monday, so let's start with winners and losers. Josh, who's your winner? My winner, 
I don't think you're going to see this coming. Okay. Georgia Bulldogs. You're right. I was not. I did <laughs> not see the Georgia Bulldogs coming. Now, does this actually have anything to do with the NCAA tournament? To be determined. However, I wanted to give some respect to what Georgia is doing and the job Mike White has done. Beat Mississippi State by eight, then one at Ole Miss. So they just took care of the state of Mississippi, which again, not the top of the SEC by any means. But Georgia's now 13 and four and three and one in SEC play with some losses that are not great, but fine. It's not like they have cat- four catastrophic losses. And interestingly enough, <laughs> they're going to go play at Kentucky on Tuesday. <laughs> so we're going to see how that one goes, but it's much more interesting than you know, a week and a half ago, anybody would have thought that game was. Again, we're going to see if this can, it's not like they have this, you know, lock, stone cold NCAA tournament resume or anything like that. They've got a real, a lot of really difficult SEC games to go, of course, because they haven't played most of the, you know, the Alabamas of the world. But this is not what I expected to see Georgia looking like under Mike White. So I wanted to give him some props. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it doesn't always mean that the coach that doesn't do great in his first high major job isn't cut out for high major college basketball. Um, And I think Todd Golden is learning at Florida that that job is not nearly as easy as it might suggest that it is. Mm -hmm. And not to say that Georgia is an easy job by any stretch of the imagination, but um, Mike White was a heralded mid-major coach when he made the move to Florida for a reason. And right. When you, when you look at the resume, they right. They have an Auburn win. That's probably the best one. So, but they're 13 and four, they're 83rd at Kimpom. And at the very least, to your point, you know, to be determined if it means anything for the NCAA tournament, but they're in position to be in yep. position. Yep. Giving themselves and, a chance. And last year, that's a six and 26 team, a 14 and 12 team the year before, a 16 and 16 team the year before that, and an 11 and 21 team the year before that. And their highest ranking in any of those years is 95th at Kempom. So they're 83rd right now. Um, you know, it doesn't, you know, it's it's kind of a mix of in the SEC of like very winnable games. I mean, it looks like they're going to, they're projected to win maybe just under half of their games remaining. Um, uh, maybe a little, maybe there's projected, you know, to win three sevenths of their their remaining games, something like that. But um, yeah, they'll have to win some games against some of the better teams they have left. They get Tennessee, um, they get Alabama, they get Arkansas, they get Auburn again. So there's a road to which they have a, you know, it might take a surprise performance in the SEC tournament perhaps, but something we haven't been able to say about Georgia recently, recently is that they're in position to be in position and this year they are. Yeah, and we talked about this idea that I don't think either of us really felt like Mike Mike White was the right guy for that Florida job after kind of how things had gone, that it just personality-wise wasn't a great fit. And we kind of said, you know, this, not that I saw this coming, but this idea of maybe it's just a better fit in a kind of, I mean, right? This is the two-time defending national champions in football. One of the bigger brands in the country men's basketball, not exactly the top of the priority list that he can kind of quietly come in there and do some good work, potentially not that I was convinced it was going to happen, but that's 
that's what we've seen so far for sure. Yeah. Um, it is a pleasant surprise to see Mike White kind of hit the ground running there in Georgia because there aren't as, as rolling as the Georgia football team is right now, that's, there was the exact opposite amount of momentum for, <laughs> for the Georgia men's basketball program um, when he took that job. But nonetheless, he's doing, he's doing a really, really solid job. Um Kind of struggled with a winner this week, and and I'm not especially sure why. I guess it's because there are some teams that like got really close to having spectacular weeks and then just couldn't quite pull off a victory. Um, I think I'm gonna go. I think I'm gonna go with the Johnnies. St. John's two and zero week. Um, they beat Butler at home, which is. Not something to write home about, but then also something they weren't doing before that game. Sure, was sure. feeding anybody, uh, right? So they 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 went from five straight losses to a two and zero week that featured a win against Butler and a win over UConn. They're now three and five in the Big East, and you know thirteen and six. The resume still isn't where it needs to be. Um, they've They've still lost all like this was the first time they've gotten a win over a team that was actually a resume building when they haven't had all that many opportunities. I mean, they had a gauntlet of a stretch where they played Xavier Seton Hall on the road, Marquette and Providence in four games. And the the game, the fifth game that they lost was Villanova on the road. Um, But they got two, two pretty good wins and then they beat UConn and I don't know if we're going to talk about UConn in the loser segment of this, but 85-74 in stores, that's a really, really good win. Per Kempom, that's their best win in a long time. Like They beat Villanova and Creighton a couple times in which they were like a top 15 Kempom team, but it's been a while since they beat a top 10 Kempom team, and they did it on... They did it on Sunday against a struggling Connecticut team, but a Connecticut team nonetheless that is Sixth at Kempom is a team that is going to make the NCAA tournament. Um, even after their tough week is still 15th in the AP poll. Um, that's a win that, and, and, you know, frankly, they're in a similar, they're in a much sim- more similar spot than I thought to last year and like preceding years than I thought they were. Because part of my original investigation was when was the last time St. John's was three and five in the big East? And the answer was last year, so that's not doesn't carry nearly as much weight. But, um, but they're three and five in their next you know four games. The, they play Villanova, Creighton, Georgetown, and Seton Hall, and three of those games are at home. Yep. So Creighton is on the road, and that's a game that you shouldn't expect to win. Um, and Creighton got a good win, a big a big win on uh, at, against Providence over the weekend. But you should expect if you can go into stores, you should expect to have Villanova, Georgetown and Seton Hall come into your building and you should, they should be leaving with a yep. loss. It should be six and, and so, six. Mm-hmm. Right. There is a very real path to six and six with no real bad losses. Like we could, like we could be sitting here on February 4th, heading into a Xavier game for St. John's in which they're, that would be what that would be 16 and seven with their worst loss being against Villanova on the road. 
because their only non-conference loss is at Iowa State. That's not a bad loss. That's not a bad loss at all. Um, that is not a position. And granted, that this this rides on the idea of St. John's beating three teams that they're supposed to in the next <laughs> 10 days. And that's a sketchy proposition in and of itself. But it's not all that often that they head into that kind of stretch, at least as of late, that they head into that stretch and you feel like they've got some momentum and that they could really be six and six and putting themselves in a position to get a couple of good wins down the stretch and not get any bad losses and maybe have a a stab at an at-large bid. So uh, the Johnnies are my winner. The Big East is so strange this year in that respect where there are clearly five teams that are very good. And then there's the rest of the conference that, to a certain extent, is kind of doing this musical chairs about how you're feeling about all of them, with the exception of Georgetown at the bottom. But, you know, it was, oh, well, St. John's is falling apart. Now here comes St. John's. St. John's is very much looking like the sixth best team in the conference at the moment. And I was going to sort of get to exactly what you did, right? Kind of the, generally speaking, but specifically in this Big East for one of the other teams trying to get a sixth bid outside of those five teams that seem as close to a lock as you can get to make the turn. I mean, I guess Creighton ha- isn't there yet, but assuming Creighton continues to play well, you got to win the games you're supposed to, which is these three in particular, right? You have to win those. And then you got to find a way to pick up two or three, whether they're at home, you just stole one in stores. You weren't expecting to get two or three of those games. And you're really in business, especially with what St. John's did in non-conference as you laid out with just avoiding bad losses. Yeah, the path the path is there, and that was not something we were talking about a week ago. That's a very good call on your part. Thank you, thank you. Um, who's your loser? There were some there were some very multiple good options. That's what I was going mm-hmm. for. Uh, mm-hmm. I chose the Razorbacks. Okay, yeah. This is now four losses in five games. We've talked about kind of the issues and, and part of why, so we don't need to get back into that. Really what I want to talk about is the eight-point halftime lead Arkansas had thanks to a seven-free-throw possession. I don't know if you saw this. They got seven free throws on the same possession and lost that game to Vanderbilt by 13 points. Again, they were winning mm. by eight at halftime. Mm. And this is where I really started to panic because they're going to take they're going to take a beating against the better teams in the SEC, the Alabamas of the world, the Tennessees of the world just because they're not on their level without Nick Smith and without Trevor Brazil. Mm-hmm. But they're racking up losses at a rate that at some point you got to be able to beat somebody in the SEC. The the Vanderbilt game and the way it all played out was a a real turning point for me and the way that it was, I mean, it was a bizarre first half with the, with this whole possession and the technicals and all that stuff, but they were there. They had an eight point lead. And then not only did they lose, but they lost in by double digits in convincing fashion. It, I, they're only, you know, there are so, so many games that you're looking at with this Arkansas team until we know that Nick Smith is coming back and Nick Smith is healthy that you look at and say, they should definitely win that one. And they had one after losing the games that they were expected to lose and they couldn't win that one either. So they're my loser. Yeah, it's, and we've, we've touched on this, but it is, 
it is quickly becoming a season that nobody thought Arkansas was going to have for, for multiple reasons. And again, those are all reasons we've touched on, but you know, for the most part, I mean, they, they lost to Alabama at home and the other three losses are away, but at some point to your point, you got to win some sec games. Um, and you know, like I said, the sec from top to bottom, isn't terrifying this year. So it's not like there aren't opportunities to rattle off wins, but a 13 point loss to just inside the top 100 Vanderbilt. I don't care who's injured. If you're a projected final four team before the season starts, you should probably be finding a way to win that game. And they just, they just aren't right now. They're getting absolutely nothing off the bench. Like their, their depth is shot as a result. I mean, Ricky, you know, RC four had a good game. Devonte Davis had a good game. Anthony black had a good game and the Mitchell brothers had a, pretty good game and they got six points off the bench. There's just no support there as a result. Um, Jordan Walsh played 17 minutes, did not score. Um, it's just, it's just the, the margin of error is so small. Um, and then you look on the other side of things and they, you know, Vanderbilt played one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten players and all 10 of them scored. So that's just, tough and then you know you take into consideration the fact that this just isn't the team that Eric Musselman thought he was yep. going to have at this point in the season and that's just unfortunate for any coach but especially for an Arkansas team that is that fancied being a real issue in the tie in, in the national conversation and at this at this point they they just aren't and that's um that's tough because it's very clear why and it will never be back to the way we were expecting it to be this season. And I think the other part is just the difficulty in trying to kind of reorganize your team so many times, right? That all of a sudden it's much more, okay, let's play the Mitchell brothers together. And now theoretically you're going to have to reintegrate Nick Smith. That There's just been so many different iterations of this team that didn't know what it was at the beginning anyway, because it, it's an entirely new team outside of Devo Davis, that there's just no consistency whatsoever. I'm sure that's part of Eric Musselman's frustration is he just, he never even knew what he had to start with. And now he's trying to reorganize everything on the fly with no foundation to sort of go back to and adjust from because that foundation just never existed because they got hurt so early in the season. Yeah, exactly. My loser is UConn. Um, couple things here. You know, we've talked a lot about Adama Sonogo and Donovan Klingon, like one of them always being there to be like the guy. And this was one of those games where it was like, oh, right, there is a world in which they both get into foul trouble. Um, the two of them combined had eight fouls. Donovan Klingon only played nine minutes in the game. Sonogo was fine, 14 points, six of 18. I mean, sorry, six of six of nine from the field, if you include um if you include the missed three pointer, eight rebounds. I mean, it was fine, but like you can't you can't lose to to St. John's in a game and because we we were harping on last week this idea of like the guard play hasn't been consistent enough. You got you got a really great performance from Jordan Hawkins. Now, granted, in in some ways, it was just as inconsistent as we've been talking about because 
Tristan Newton and Andre Jackson combined for two points in this game. Um, so that's not, that's not, that's not great, but Jordan Hawkins had 31. So in theory, in a game, which you get 33 points from those guards and you get 14 from Sonogo and 16 from Alex Caravan, like that should be enough to beat St. John's in stores. And it wasn't particularly close to beating St. John's in stores, which is, which is really concerning. And the other thing, and the other thing here is, is, and really why they're my loser in a matter of like two and a half weeks, we've gone from UConn as the best team in the country to UConn is out of the Big East title race. Out. They are just as close to Georgetown at 0-7 <laughs> in the conference as they are to Xavier at 7-0. and mm-hmm. They're 4-4, four and four, right there in the center. They are now only a game ahead of teams like Butler, and St. John's. They are tied with a team like Seton Hall. They are closer to those St. John's and Butler's teams than they are to Marquette at 6-2, and two, who's in third. Like, this is over. <laughs> UConn's Big East title chances are over in the regular season, and that is a crazy, crazy proposition considering where we were on Christmas Day with this basketball team, and that was only 21 days ago. Um, 22 days ago. That's, that's cra- that is a crazy thing to say based on where we were with this team. I mean, there were people, I mean, we, I would almost argue there were, it was the majority that even when Purdue was number one and UConn was number two, it was UConn yep. is the best team in the country and yep. they were beating everybody by double digits. It took them like three months to be trailing in the second half. And now they just look like, now they just look inconsistent in a lot of different ways. And that's that's super i mean even even in the front court like i would like i would rather just always know it's sonogo like who's taking on the main role and klingon taking on the secondary role like i don't really want to have to decipher halfway through the first half which one of those guys is the guy now granted i just think it should we should operate under the assumption now we talked about this last week that we should just always operate under the assumption that Snogo is the guy regardless of how many points he has relative to Klingon but in the front in the you know in the backcourt as well it just seems like all of these guys that we were so sure on 21 days ago there are some inconsistencies the like Snogo national player of the year train has completely come to a stop and it's just a completely different situation in stores right now and that is that is surprising but right at the center of why they're my losers because they lost i mean the margin of error was that small that if they lost another game they weren't supposed to they were out of the conversation and xavier kept on you know xavier kept on winning i mean providence you know second place is in a shouting distance i suppose because providence isn't also seven to zero on this monday morning but it is it is looking very bleak for UConn, not from a NCAA tournament perspective, like that's not what this is about, but from a like this team was national national title contenders, and I still think that's somewhere in inside this basketball team somewhere. But Big East regular season champs is not. It's over for that for that aspiration this season. That's crazy to think about. And not only mathematically would it be so difficult to actually talk yourself into how they could do it. I also have zero faith at this point. They're going to rattle off, you know, 10 straight conference wins, right? The kind of thing sure. that they would have to do to even get back in the conversation. Right. hundred percent, hundred percent that 
if you're, I could talk myself into maybe a Creighton at full health doing that or something, or sure. Providence if you get the right or Marquette if you get the right stretch of games. I, there's to your inconsistency point. I don't even think that that UConn is capable of doing their part of this to even make it interesting. And the other thing I'll throw out there that we talked about from the beginning of these losses. One of the consistencies with this team in the midst of all the inconsistencies is their frequency of following people. And I I didn't really think that was a big deal. I wasn't too worried about it. It's just another one of those things, though, that you start piling all these other issues on top of it. It makes your life really difficult. And that might have to be part of the solution if they're going to figure this out is that that's actually something that needs to be addressed. I wasn't convinced it was, but when you have these other glaring issues as well, it just all built on top of each other. Exactly. That's winners and losers. Teams that put themselves in good positions, teams that didn't do quite so much in that department. We'll do that throughout the rest of the season until winners and losers becomes very, very obvious in practice. Um, Anything else in that realm before we move on to Saturday's games? No, let's get to it. Four games, just a good old-fashioned chit-chat about them. Kentucky versus Tennessee, um, TCU versus Kansas State, Kansas versus Iowa State, and then Marquette, the Golden Eagles versus Xavier. Jam-packed Saturday once again, as per usual, when it gets to conference play in the college basketball schedule, and uh, and this Saturday was was no different. Let's start in the SEC. Is that okay? Yeah. Can we start with Kentucky and Tennessee? Um, you know, 62, 63-56 final store, score, Kentucky in Knoxville gets the win over Tennessee. Josh, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure I feel any differently about any of these teams, either of these teams. <laughs> yeah, I think that's because- a very very valid opinion to hold and, like like and, and let me lay it out um kentucky got a lot of crap the last week and and rightfully so um yes they won this basketball game but all the reasons that they were getting crap and all of the reasons that this team isn't this basketball team isn't very good they're still here i mean the, i mean first and foremost this was a painful game to watch kentucky 18 to 51 from the field 5 to 16 from deep um, the difference was that they took 15 more free throws and made 15 more free throws than Tennessee did. Tennessee was 23 of 57 from the field, three of 21 from deep, just seven of 10 from the free throw line. I mean, that's your difference right there was getting to the free throw line. Um, but like all of these things that we've been talking about are still there. Like on the Tennessee side, I feel I compartmentalize Tennessee in the exact same way I compartmentalize Virginia teams have passed. Do I wholeheartedly believe that Virginia, that excuse me, Tennessee is one of the 10 best teams in the country? Yes, wholeheartedly. At the same time, am I acutely aware that these things can happen to Tennessee? Also, yes. Also, yes. And and this is only, you know, they, they they've had some games where they've escaped with bad offensive performances, but you know, they had a bad offensive performance uh, against a top 15 team, I think at the time and and came out with a win. The only other really big stinker is, is Colorado. I mean, they scored 70 points against against Arizona and lost by five. I mean, I don't really compartmentalize that as one of those 
while Tennessee just had one of those nights losses. Um, but I mean, this was the sixth time this season Tennessee has shot worse than 30% from the three point line. It was like 14% in this game. They were like four of three of 21, 21. 14, mm-hmm. 14%. And they've lost three, all three of their games have fallen in that six game window. So the margin of error when they shoot that like really, really bad is just, is just there. But I mean, all of the same things are true when it comes to this Kentucky team. I mean, 15, 12 shots to get to 15 points is not, is not efficient enough for Oscar Sheepway. It's not efficient enough as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the three point shooting is still atrocious. Five of 16, um, players not named Sheepway in the starting lineup combined for a, a whopping seven field goals in this game. And case Wallace had a great four five, six game that being four fouls, five turnovers and six assists with zero points in 22 minutes. Like I I'm just not sure the conclusion I'm coming to with this game is actually any conclusion that I would come to that's different than what it would have been prior to this game. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, what's your, what's your reaction to that? And just your, the reaction to, to this game in general. I definitely feel that way from a Tennessee standpoint. It was just one of those offensive stinkers. They couldn't shoot. They were missing layups. It's just going to happen sometimes. And as bad as Kentucky's been, Kentucky's good enough to beat you when that happens, when Kentucky shows up on defense. That was the first thing is Kentucky played really good defense in this game, which is why it was so ugly. There was a question as to whether that was a, you know, thing that could theoretically happen with what's been going on during this stretch of poor performances. The second thing, yeah, to me, this was more about kind of giving Kentucky hope again and trying to save this season than it was everything is different. Sure. The one interesting conversation coming out of this game I did want to mention is Xavier Willard in play. And so all of a sudden this lineup, inserting C.J. Frederick, that people have been clamoring for, that the analytics say is Kentucky's best lineup, that hasn't played together very much at all heading into this game, had to play together, and they won at Tennessee. So what I'm more than anything, I'm just curious what happens next when Savio mm-hmm. comes back. How does John Calipari handle that? Because it's sure. got to mean something those guys actually went and beat Tennessee. Does it solve all of the issues? No, but that's something I'm looking at moving forward. And the other thing I'll throw out there that I suppose is, is, is worthy of note is that, I mean, Kentucky's best player in the last 10 days has begged for players to play hard and, and you don't win at Tennessee when you shoot, you know, what would I say? 37% from the field, 35%. Like you don't win at Tennessee only making 18 field goals in the yep. entire game if you didn't like if you weren't ready to play and were ready to, you know, battle to mm-hmm. use this cliche of a word as possible. Yep. That's just not what's going and, and I mean the Tennessee is a hard nosed defensive team, right? The best best defensive team in the country per per the metrics at this point. So from that point of view, I, I think that at least if it doesn't actually mean anything for the product on the floor, ultimately, internally, I'm sure it means something. Which yes, oh, huge which deal. yeah, will which will mean something and is a a foundation to try and turn this thing around and get back to a point where because ultimately, at the end of the day, 
whether whether it's you know because they have Kentucky stapled across their chest or not, like they're still very much in the conversation for the NCAA tournament, and this win certainly puts them back there. And they'll have opportunities, and you know all of those things. They got a quad one win finally, and so they're still there. And so if a game like this can be a foundation, like that's probably the bigger thing than anything. Mm-hmm. We yep. can look back in three weeks and see just how much this Tennessee win actually means from a rest of the season standpoint because of course in and of itself beating Tennessee at Tennessee is a big deal for your resume but what it means for your performance in the next three weeks might be even more important yeah I do think it's it it can be definitely looked potentially looked back upon as the turning point of the season where it there's still a flawed basketball team I don't see that changing where all of a sudden they start looking like a final four contender but mm-hmm. in terms of the narrative surrounding this team, I do think there's a good chance that that changes in large part because of what happened on Saturday. Yeah. I just wish it would have come in a performance that gave me a little bit more hope in terms of, because like, like case and Wallace can't like go over three from the floor and have five turnovers again. Like we just can't, we can't do that. We can't make a habit of that. Um, and for a lot of the season, it was, yeah, Kentucky's really struggling, but Kaysen Wallace night in, night out is like is like been really good. Mm-hmm. And he struggled in this particular game. Doesn't mean that he will struggle till the end of time. Just something to keep an eye on because sometimes it just happens like that. You plug one hole or one you figure one thing out and another thing becomes unplugged. And yep. that's just difficult to navigate no matter who you are. Um, but especially the season that Kentucky's had thus far. Yeah. So do you so just just straight up do you feel differently about Kentucky at the end of the day than you did before this game? No. Okay. I think I I think that's where most people would come down, but as we've laid out, it could be the launching point to a better second half of the season. To me it was just never as bad as people were making it out to be. So, I'm not going to overreact on the other side and say everything is is safe because you look at the people on that roster and you're just I just can't be stunned that they found a way to put it together for one game and beat a Tennessee team that's suspect to offensive disasters. Mm-hmm. You know, it just there was a series of events that could unfold that lead to Kentucky winning this game, regardless of how Kentucky's playing, regardless of how well Tennessee is playing. And they happen to all happen. I, I, yeah, to me, it, it definitely is a much bigger deal for Kentucky than Tennessee. I don't really change my overall viewpoint much at all though i think i agree with that Alrighty, kentucky 63 56 over tennessee maybe the maybe the win that reignites their season next in the big 12 tcu versus kansas state 82 68 the final score in favor of jamie dixon's tcu horn frogs what say you about a 14-point win for TCU that really came in the first half? They were yep. up by 14 at you know at the at the uh, at the break and kind of held on to that lead throughout the second half. The second half was a dead draw, 39 points for for each team in the second half. What say you? Yeah, th- this was not a 14-point game. This was a 20-plus point win that ended as a 14-point win because the game was over. This is about as fun as I've had watching basketball for 20 minutes as I can remember in a long, long time, what TCU did in that first half. Mike Miles just 
ripped Kansas State apart. I mean, Kansas State kept turning the ball over. This has become my thing with TCU. You turn the ball over, you're done for. You just are. Because they're the, one of the best transition teams in the country. And you get Mike Miles out running. I mean, they had this one turnover. It was three passes, I think, maybe four to get it all the way down the court. Three or four passes. The ball didn't hit the floor. It was gorgeous. And I think Mike Miles had seven assists in the first half. He didn't score in this game because he didn't need to. He just kept running really good offense for them. And so then you scored. 13 and 11. 13 and 11 Mm -hmm. in this game. You score 82 points while going three of 19 from three. That's, and, you know, sometimes it's not like they're, they haven't been as good defensively as I thought they were going to be. But they still force turnovers, and so they still get out and run, and you're just, (laughs) it all kind of came crashing down for Kansas State. You're just not, you can't turn the ball over like that. And, yeah, they started to pick it up a little bit in the second half. I, I don't think this is some big referendum on Kansas State. That's, it's just a really difficult, grind in the Big 12, right? It's the same thing TCU just experienced, where you're playing a really good team every single night. So you're going to take some losses along the way. They're mm-hmm. all really good basketball teams. You could go a long way in March, and I really hope kind of that this Big 12 shows up in the NCAA tournament and gets the credit it deserves for how good it is this season and how good it always is. It was it was a sight to behold, though. I loved that first half. That's really all I have to say. <laughs> um, A couple things. You know, he had... Mike Miles had a very, very um, Chuck Harris performance. I mean, against Villanova on Friday, Chuck Harris like came out and was doing the thing in the first half, and then they realized that Seamus Lukosius couldn't couldn't miss, and then Chuck Harris didn't score in the second half, but he facilitated and did the thing and was the most important player on Butler's team, like he usually is. Like Mike Miles is the most important player on this TCU team, but once again, Emmanuel Miller. 23, eight and four. I mean, that guy's an issue. Um, and, and that's just a really, really good basketball team. Um, I have one concern when it comes to Kansas state, one concern when it comes to, can they replicate success in the ballpark of what they replicated early in the conference schedule. And that's at some point, Marquise Noel and Keontae Johnson need help. offensively. Mm-hmm. Um, just just to run down some numbers for you. Um, in this game, 34 points between the two of them. Tyke Green was the only other player in double figures. Um, the only other player to score more than eight points. Um, against Oklahoma State, a game that they also failed to get to 70 points. Johnson and Noel combined for 32, and there was only one other player in double figures. Against Baylor, there was also only one guy in double figures, but it didn't matter because Johnson and Noel combined for 56. That's what I was going to say. Is the other difference is, no, not that you should be expecting 50 from them every game, but they're scoring 36-40 instead of 50. Right. Yeah, Right. And when they scored 116, they had five players in double figures on top of those two guys combining for 64. So no mm-hmm. wonder they got to 116 points. <laughs> um, that's my only... That's my only cause for hesitation when it comes to this Kansas state team, because in the same way that it's easy for a, you know, there's just the big 12 teams are going to get to see these guys again. And there's just more time to watch them play other teams and figure out, okay, what's the best way to guard them? Like both of these guys are like really, I mean, in, in, in this game, they come, they were 13 of 30 from the field together. Like that's, 
not horrible. I mean, 34 points combined, like I said, they need to be better. Like they had 13 of the 20 turnovers. Like they need to do a better job taking care of the basketball. Um, but that's okay. They have the ball in their hands so much. Like it's, it's skewed a little bit, but still um, 13 assists between the 13 turnovers between the two of you is a lot, regardless of how many, how many possessions you have the ball in your hands. That's the only thing I'm, I'm keeping an eye on here. And it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a ton, but like the starting lineup gave them 12 points outside of Keontae Johnson and Marquise Noel. That's just not good enough. Yeah. If you're really, truly intending on contending for a big 12 regular season title, it's just not because mm-hmm. there are teams like Kansas and we'll get to Kansas here in a second that no matter how long they seem like they're not going to win the basketball game, they always figure out a way to win the basketball <laughs> game. And yeah. that's just the reality of the situation in the big 12. And needing your guys to score 55 combined to beat the best teams in the conference is, I mean, those are two pretty good guys to have to do it, but that's just not a recipe for, for winning a big 12 regular season title when the mountains are as tall as, as teams like Kansas. So that is the only thing I'm, I'm keeping an eye on because it's been the case, even apart from the Texas game, it's been the case relatively consistently that those two guys are carrying an enormous load, which is fine, but they need to have a little bit more support um, around them to to win at this clip for the rest of the season. Yeah, and it's it's a lot to ask on both ends of consistent production to help them out and them being two of the best five players in the conference every single night. But that is that is the formula that has to both happen for Kansas State to, I mean, talk about Kansas State winning the big 12 regular season title here you know that's but that's the conversation and the evaluation that this team has earned based on what they've done so far 100 percent. anything else on this game no let's get to the other Kansas team Kansas 62 Iowa State 60 second game in a row that was very much in the air for the Jayhawks um I mean, they had no business coming back and beating Oklahoma. They came back and beat Oklahoma anyways. And here we are, death taxes, and Kansas is first in the Big 12. They're 16-1. and one. Um, They are now 5-0 and oh in the Big 12. They have three teams nipping at their heels in Kansas State, Texas, and Iowa State, but nipping at their heels is the, is the, key, is the key phrase in that sentence. They've separated themselves slightly. Um, 16-1, and one, they they come out with another victory in very Kansas in the Big 12 fashion, just finding a way to get the to get the job done. They got 10 points from guys not named KJ Adams, Jalen Wilson, and Grady Dick in this game. Um, and eight of those 10 points came from Kevin McCuller Jr. Um they still they and they found a way to win about found a way to beat a top fifteen team and Iowa State Iowa State also getting a very similar um, production um, performance um, Gabe Kelcher really good game twenty three and six um, and then the production dropped off considerably pretty quickly after that um, just a grinded out really tough Big Twelve game. What say you about the Jayhawks just kind of doing what they do and finding a way to win an alarming amount of Big 12 games? If I'm TJ Otzelberger, I'm really frustrated. And I'm really frustrated because 
there were so many times when it looked like they were going to lose control of this game. And the thing that finally did them in was bad decision making. They had a couple bad, with two or three or four minutes left, they had a string of just bad possessions, bad shots. I thought that was going to end the game. Nope, it didn't. They hang in there. They get the ball. And Caleb Grill decides, I'm going to pull up from basically midcourt with four seconds left on the clock as he is moving downhill and I think could have gotten into the paint. I think he had, I have to go watch it back and really evaluate it, but it looked like he could have gotten into the middle of the defense potentially, at least put some pressure on him. With, again, three, four seconds left on the clock. He didn't need to shoot it when he did, and he just Mm -hmm. launched a shot that was never going in. Mm Mm-hmm. From a game plan and an execution standpoint, they simultaneously dominated the offensive glass and kept Candace out of transition. That is almost impossible to do. And they did it at Fog Allen. And in the end, it just wasn't quite enough because those two, three possessions that were going to decide the game, Candace executed better. It is To me, if I'm Otzelberger, this is all fixable stuff. This is a game we should have won. Which... Is a testament to how good this Iowa State team is. And also a reminder of how difficult it is to win in the Big 12 because if you don't win the game, Candace is going to. You can't just leave it up to kind of one possession. You need to actually make sure you win that game and make the plays to take it from Candace because if you don't take it, Candace will say thank you. And somehow, some way, they'll answer all your threes. They'll get the bucket they need. It's just what happens. Yeah, you know, it, it's... I just kind of agree with all of the things that you just said, right? I mean, it was a game that, you know, I mean, props to Iowa State. I mean, we are so far past the will Iowa State continue the level of play once they get into Big 12 play. Like, we're so we're so far past that at this point. Um, but it is it is more than anything a testament to how well you have to play for all 40 minutes. Because, I like, if you asked Otzeberger you know, in a, in a very, like in a very truthful setting, if he felt like that his team did what they needed to do to win this basketball game, he would say yes. Exactly. And they did pretty much everything they needed to do, except to your point, execute in the last 60 seconds and just not get and And it's part of playing in fog Allen. It's just, it's easy to get excited. Like I'm sure like if you ask Caleb Grill what he was thinking there, he'd probably say I pro- I, I wasn't. You know what I mean? And yeah. and that's not that's not really a knock on Caleb Grill. That's just the nature of the beast of of it taking so much energy and effort to beat Kansas at Fog Allen, even in the days that you execute the way that you wanted to. That when you get a chance to do it it's just like borderline overwhelming, like just Mm -hmm. because it's so uncommon. And, and, you know, like you said, I mean, they, you know, they knocked down, you know, eight of 20 from the three point line, but they only shot 38% from the field, but they found a way to be in this basketball game. You know, they, 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 they really did. And it was just barely, it was just barely not enough, which is, and against everybody else, in the country, it would have been enough. If you execute the game plan to yeah. the way that to, to the T, the way that Iowa State did, 
against anybody else except Kansas at Fog Allen in Big 12 play, it would have been enough. And it just barely wasn't. And that's why Kansas wins the Big 12 over and over and over and over again. Yeah, it was a this was honestly one of my favorite games of the season, just from a back and forth standpoint, that yeah. every time you felt like, OK, Iowa State gets it to five or the game is tied and I, Gabe Kelcher hits another three and silences the crowd. Kansas hits one right back. It was such a emotional back and forth. Everybody had an answer. It was just great college basketball. I mean, obviously from a scoring standpoint, it wasn't all that pretty, but these are the kind of games I love because it was great execution. It was just two really good teams going at it defensively and making life difficult for each other. And you each had a possession at the end. Kansas got a bucket. Iowa State got a terrible shot. And that's what decides it. Yeah. It was in the th- this game and the Texas TCU game, two of, mm-hmm. uh, of a couple of the the best of the season, just because of how back and forth. And Kansas and the, the Texas TCU game was much more about the unbelievable shot making late mm-hmm. in that game yeah. from both sides, and maybe not quite the same category for this game, but still a a blow for blow kind of game in a in elite in an elite environment is really all you're asking for when it comes to to college basketball games at the end of the day. Yeah. 62-60, the Jayhawks. That is my biggest swing and miss from the preseason was my doubting the <laughs> Kansas Jayhawks. You win some, you lose some, and yeah. at the end of the day, doubting the Kansas Jayhawks in general just kind of fails the out loud test, and you probably shouldn't do it. But I did it anyways, and it is predictably – it has predictably come back to bite me in the backside. Hey, I did the same thing. I'm right there with you. All righty. <laughs> Who did we pick? Did we pick Baylor to win this conference? I, I think know I, I picked, did. did. I think I think I picked Baylor. I'm pretty sure I picked Baylor. Knowing how I felt about Baylor preseason, I would be surprised <laughs> if I didn't pick Baylor. But, okay. Let me find. We got one more game left. This game was on Saturday, right? Sunday. No, Sunday. Excuse me. That's why I couldn't find it in the box score. Um, Saturday, Sunday, little Sunday afternoon, big, good beat. I'm a fan of like afternoon Big East basketball on a Sunday. It's kind of, you know, you get your Big Ten games sprinkled in there on a Sunday too, but the Big East had some had some fun games on, on Sunday afternoon, headlined by a top 25 matchup between Xavier and Marquette. We've talked about it a little bit in the winners and losers segment, but Xavier getting a win, moving to seven and zero in con- in the Big East Conference, alone atop the league. Eighty seventy six, the final score here. They were down at halftime, came back to win this game at home in the Centos Center. Listen, I know that you and I aren't supposed to compliment Xavier in any way, shape, or form, but the Centos Center looks lit every time there's a good game there. It looks absolutely electric. Um, Tyler Kolek continues to stamp his. <laughs> To, to to plant his firm foundation in my favorite college basketball players this season. He messed he with the tw- ratio real bad though. He had twenty five and seven. He did mess with the ratio, but he this is my favorite. This is why I love Tyler Kolek because he is totally fine with getting seven points and dishing out eleven assists. But this is not the first time he's had an offensive explosion this season. Mm-hmm. He had twenty five seven and four, um, eleven of eighteen from the field to lead all scores in this game. Uh, but Xavier in a very, what's becoming a pretty Xavier fashion, a very balanced effort 
across the board, six different guys in double figures. Nobody had more than 16. Those two guys were Jack Nungy and probably we haven't talked about this yet, but like Sully Boom has to be yeah. the best transfer, the best newcomer in the Big East this year, right? I think we talked about this. We talked about him in terms of under the radar transfer impact. I think last pod. Yeah. Oh, okay. he's been sensational. Yeah. But like if the season were in today, he'd have to be newcomer of the year, right? Yeah, I can't think I of anybody if, off the top of my I, head. I mean, the only other guy would be Shireman, and I think Boom's mm. had a better season than, than Shireman. Yeah, up to this I would point. agree with that. Yeah. Not the that is, that's better bad. competition than I was thinking. Right, that's better competition than I was thinking of just immediately. But yeah, I would. Oh yeah, Boom would have my vote. Um, he had sixteen. Not the most efficient of days, but sixteen, five and six, five assists to just one turnover. That's what you're asking Sully Boom to do. Um, and and the Musketeers find a way to win an, another game. They have one of the longest active winning streaks in the country at this point, and um, and they're absolutely rolling. What say you about a four point win? Um over over the Marquette Golden Eagles. You know what I was thinking about in the first half of this game? Hit me. <laughs> the most frustrating or dispiriting, if that's a word, things that sort of can be unfolding in a game if you're a fan in the building of your team playing at home. Right, in terms of what is the most trying to take the crowd noise out of it. What is the easiest or most effective way to really get fans frustrated and quiet? Because, right, you've got the, okay, one guy just can't miss, you know, sort of one person show kind of thing, a defensive struggle. And then you have what Tyler Kolick did in the first half, which for me has my vote, which is simply they couldn't keep him out of the lane. He just – and it's it's not like he was making tough shots. He just hit layup after layup after yeah. layup after layup. It was incredible. And that's what to he did me. against Providence too. That's <laughs> the, it, was, it was just like simple pick and rolls, and all of a sudden he's got this like little floater thing, layups just with seemingly nobody around him. Yeah. To me, that's the most frustrating thing is just why is this player at the basket again? <laughs> and and- – Oh, and the answer is, is because he's an incredible facilitator mm-hmm. because they are, there's almost a, you're almost conditioned to, for Tyler Kolick to make the right pass rather mm-hmm. than just score it. Don't let, right, you know don't let him beat us with his passing. Right. Which is a, which is a crazy thing to, to like, think about. It's like, Hey, yeah. don't let him pass instead of letting him just like do layup lines in the middle of our defense. But I think that's, I think that's a big part of it that they're just assuming he's going to find somebody who's getting a better shot that as a result, they just kind of, the the lapses are there relatively consistently. It is not you because you're right. It was just kind of like, why is this guy getting another layup? (laughs) And it was exactly what happened against, against Providence. He just kind of kept doing the same thing and having a wide open look right in the center of the paint. And clearly whatever he's doing is working. And so that to me was, I just kept thinking about that. That's how you take a crowd out of it. It's just, Mm. it seems impossible to stop this guy from getting the basket. Now, second half, different story. They figured it out. And ultimately then when Tyler Kolick wasn't getting 20 points off of layups, the offensive glass, the dominance of the two bigs, and a little bit of improved play from the guard position in the second half made it 
made the difference. And if if Marquette couldn't keep it up offensively, Xavier was going to win this game. You know, neither of these teams are particularly great defensively. They're both really good offensively. And unless you, again, it's got to be perfect to beat Xavier at the Centos Center. Marquette was mm-hmm. really good. Marquette was not perfect. What was working in the first half didn't really work in the second half to the same extent. And of course, they they you know, it's not like they got blown out in the second half. They kept the game close. They're a really good basketball team. Mm-hmm. You got to be just a little bit better to beat Xavier at home this season with what Xavier offers you. And so Jack Nungie dominating the offensive glass. Everybody played at least fine to well, right? It wasn't a, like you said, it was balanced. It's not like Silly Boom had the best game in the world, but everybody delivered the way that they needed to. And I, I'm really becoming convinced that Xavier's just not losing at home this season. It, it seems to be moving in that direction. I mean, just for what it's worth, their home games remaining Georgetown, Providence, like St. John's. Like their chances at that one. <laughs> Their, their remaining home game, here's their remaining home games. Just keep in mind, they've already beaten UConn, Creighton, and Marquette, Marquette at home. Oh, they lost Indiana at home. They've already, they've already oh. lost at home. I forgot about that. They did lose to Indiana at home. That's quickly um, becoming one of the best wins of the season. That's right. Yep. Up there with the Butler Bulldogs and their Kansas State win. Yeah, baby. <laughs> um, but, but the rest of the way, and certainly yeah. in Big East play, I mean, they, they get Georgetown, Providence, St. John's, DePaul, Villanova, and Butler. That's what they have left at home. And you're right. I mean, they are they are very, very hard to beat. This is this is the first like this is the first game this season where I really where I came away thinking that they would have lost this game if Sean Miller wasn't their head coach. I really thought, <laughs> like, I think they lose this game as Tra- if Travis Steele is their head coach. I agree. Um, That's a good way to put it. And and like, I'm I'm like I hesitate sometimes to like like I just kind of think it's cheap to like halfway through a coach's first season to be like, man, it's just because of Sean Miller because like there are a lot of really good players on Xavier's basketball team, but. Travis Steele annually underperformed and, you know, fell short of expectations. And Sean Miller clearly is not going to fall short of expectations. I mean, we've already overexceeded at some, you know, whatever the rest of the season looks like, whatever the last, you know, two, two plus months of the regular season look like month and a half of the regular season look like Xavier will have, Overexceeded expectations unless something goes horribly wrong here. Um, and I just felt like, you know, the way that the adjustments that they made coming into the second half and stopping what was the, you know, the free flowing faucet of Marquette's offense in the first half. And to your point, they were probably going to win the game if they could just stop Tyler Kolick. And they did. And they won the game. But I'm just not sure they would have won it if Sean Miller wasn't on the on the sidelines. And that was the first time this season that I came away from it thinking that specifically that that was that that was one of the reasons why because of the in game uh, adjustments that he made and the fact that he is just you know regardless of what you think about Sean Miller and regardless about the history that he has, nobody's arguing that Sean Miller isn't a good head basketball coach. And he showed why 
on Sunday. And that was kind of what I came away with along with all of those other things that we've, that we've laid out. Yeah, no, I really like, I really like ending this conversation that way that it, yeah, it took everything, which is a credit to Marquette and a credit mm-hmm. to Shaka Smart that, cause I was kind of basketball there, team is really good. Yeah. That, I, Marquette, Marquette, that, yeah. that's a really, really good basketball team this year. I was, I was kind of sitting there at halftime going, there's the part of me that just refuses to believe Xavier loses to a big East team at home at this point, the way they're playing. And there's the other part of me that refuses to believe Marquette's not going to win this game with the way that they, I mean, it's not like they were, you know, up 15 at halftime or anything, but just the way that it was going, the ease with which they were scoring, they forced some turnovers. They just looked like elite Marquette. Mm -hmm. And obviously one of those two things had to give, and it was the Marquette continuing to look this good because Xavier found a way to get the win at home. Yeah, that's right. The changes, the ability to adjust and get the most out of this team and not panic when things are going poorly and not let it snowball, but actually address the issue. Yeah. There was a problem. It got fixed. Xavier won. Yep. That's all I've got. You got anything else from the weekend, from the week, anything else? Real quick. want to mention a couple other teams. Clemson continuing to roll. It looked like Duke was going to find a way to win that game about five different times. And all of a sudden Clemson just kept scoring (laughs) and just, Casually rolling along in the top 25 now. Brad Brownell living his best life. You mentioned Creighton earlier. I wanted to acknowledge that. They got a a really good, important Big East win they needed against Providence to kind of get themselves within striking distance of the the upper tier of the conference. And then Arizona. (laughs) I feel like we needed to at least acknowledge that this happened again, Mm -hmm. where as much as I like that lineup, sometimes it just goes horribly wrong. Horribly wrong. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, UCLA is clearly, clearly the class of that conference. And you and I look good for – and that. that's one of our, our – we talked about our bad call on the Big 12 earlier. Pac-12 is looking pretty good for us. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, the whole – Bobby Hurley in Arizona State is the only team within two games of UCLA right now. That's <laughs> that's something I'm pretty confident in. But yeah, I mean, the UCLA has the nation's third longest active winning streak at 13. They haven't lost since a Baylor loss on November 20th, and they they're just they're rolling. They haven't come especially they a USC game that in which they won by two. They've had some close calls. In in conference play, you know, a Washington State win on the road by just one. Um, but other than that, they they keep they keep right on rolling. They beat Colorado by fourteen on on Saturday. They do get Arizona State on Thursday, which will be interesting. It'll be a very nice um, barometer for how good that Bobby Hurley team actually is. Right, that Bobby Hurley team, fifteen and three, they're still just fifty fourth at Kempom, and they still are a team that has losses to both San Francisco and Texas Southern. So, um, will be intriguing to see what they look like against what you acutely pointed out is the class of the conference. That's all. Just wanted to get those in there. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's a. Uh, I think that is adequate. I'm I almost sure I made Clemson was going to be my honorary mention as a winner this week. So, shouts to Clemson. They just keep kind of they they keep kind of doing doing the thing. Yeah, they keep doing the thing. Um, I suppose we should. The last thing I'll do is is acknowledge what happened in Tuscaloosa. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Darius Miles among two men charged with capital murder um, in Tuscaloosa on, I believe it was Saturday night. Um, just, just, you know, hours after it, it was announced that he was going to miss the rest of the season with an ankle injury. Um, we'll continue to kind of monitor that. And if we feel like there's a larger conversation that needs to be had about that, as we get more information, then we will have that conversation when the time comes but that is not something that we wake up to very often whatsoever is that not only is there a basketball player in you know connected to a to a crime of that magnitude but a basketball player connected to something as serious as capital murder and you know which is something that can 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 have consequences that stretch all the way to the death penalty. And that's a very, that is a wild, wild thing. So just, uh, we'll continue to monitor that and, and see where it goes, where it goes from here. Yeah. And the more, at least for me, the more I've read about it, the more I've learned, just the more heartbreaking and awful and horrific it seems to be. And yeah, right. I mean, the accusations, the information speaks for itself. If if we feel like there's something that needs to be discussed or added to at some point, definitely we'll do that. Just trying to, yeah, still kind of process and organize organize everything. But I'm I was going to bring that. I had also thought about bringing that up. So thank you for doing so because it needs to be mentioned. And it's yeah, it's just awful. Yeah, absolutely. I believe that's all we have. Please subscribe to the Jays for Days podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Jays for Days Pod. Check out the YouTube bite-sized content there, as well as the full video podcast, and then TikTok as well. The TikTok doing doing pretty well in the last week and a half or so, so we appreciate uh, any of you who are supporting over there as well. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Jays for Days podcast. I'm Josh. He's Josh. And we'll see you later.